Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zippero, the club's vice president of media and editorial and Michelle's co-host for the program. Thanks for joining us today. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, the Commonwealth Club is a 118-year-old, almost 119-year-old, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues of the day. Any views expressed are those of the speakers. Now, the Commonwealth Club is producing hundreds of programs a year, even during the pandemic. Head over to commonwealthclub.org MMS for all upcoming programs. In the next few weeks, we'll be talking with filmmakers about a woman-run news service in India. We'll meet the candidates for the most closely watched legislative election in California, and we'll have a live in-person program with Jeopardy! champion Amy Schneider. So reserve your tickets now. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao. She's the producer and the host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to all of you for joining us for this conversation. We hope that you're staying safe and healthy. I think it's still hard for many of us, I know it is for myself, to look back after two years of this pandemic, especially to think about the beginning of it. We're still grappling with the virus, its variants and mutations, and the continued disruptions to our lives. In the Same Breath is a film currently available on HBO that explores the origin and spread of COVID-19 from Wuhan to the United States. So here to discuss In the Same Breath is filmmaker Nanfu Wang. But before we begin our conversation, let's play the trailer for In the Same Breath. Each year in January, I return to my home in China This was the last moment I can remember when life still felt normal. Then, in an instant, everything changed. Hospitals were overwhelmed. The official news report said that everything was under control. But people were dying on the streets. The risk remains low. There's very little threat here. The media was staging interviews with doctors and nurses. I started asking questions. How are we preparing for this? I was accused of causing hysteria and spreading rumors. I knew immediately something was wrong. We didn't know what to do. The moment you open your mouth, you conceivably could become a target. When the government is telling us where to look, they're also telling us where not to look. Hospitals are warning them not to talk to the media. It started out as a medical crisis. It has become a test of our form of government. This is the reflection of a broken system that was already in the verge of death. It's hard to picture how all of this might end. But I can clearly imagine how this could have begun differently. We have to be united to fight this. Welcome, Nanfu. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, let's begin by by talking about, uh, you know, 
the the film and and kind of where it started, how it started with yourself. I know the the film opens up. We hear your voice. It's New Year's. It's around you know it's January twenty twenty, and it feels very personal. Thanks. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, I um, I was born and I grew up in China. Um, so um, the film opens in January 2020 when I was in China visiting my mother who lives 300 miles away from Wuhan. And I had brought my two-year-old son to visit my uh, my mom. And I had 10 days that I needed to come back to the U.S. to work. So I made a decision that I was going to leave my son for 10 days uh, in China, and then I was going to return and spend more time with my mom and to pick him up and come back home. So on the day that I came back to the U.S., um, uh, which was January 23rd, um, Wuhan went into lockdown, and I learned the news when I landed in San Francisco airport. Um, so the initial reaction was, really like not sure how how serious the virus was and um, trying to understand and figure out if my mom, if my son, if my family, they would be safe and whether I needed to take any action, whether I needed to go. Um, at the time, um, my work prevented me from leaving. I had to be there. And so I was talking to my husband who is an American citizen and doesn't speak much Chinese at all. And my family lives uh, three flights and two buses away from Shanghai or Beijing, big city. So we had engaged and then thought about if he could go back to China to pick him up. But then at the same time, as parents, we thought we must be paranoid. When when our child is, has like, you know, any distant threat of danger, we react with irrational thoughts. So at the time I was like, let me really figure out how serious the virus was. And I started talking to people in Wuhan and trying to find more information, trying to uh, piece together everything, everything I can find from the government. And quickly I realized that what the government had told people was uh, the virus was under control. It's completely contained in Wuhan. My family in another city is not gonna be spread it to. And, um, but when, what I learned from people in Wuhan it was a complete different story. They couldn't get care. The hospitals were full. Um, nobody would answer their calls. And social media and anything on the internet um, that they wanted to send out, those would be deleted. And the, fi the final moment that made me realize I need to get my son out um, was in my hometown. Um, I had relatives who work in the, in the hospital and work for the government. And they told us, because every day you can monitor how many cases that city has, and it was zero, zero, zero. Um, but my relatives have told me that the hospital already gotten, like, had COVID cases. The government official relative also told me that that was the policy that they were not allowed to report. So from outside, you still see is zero case. And that was when my husband flew to China, got my son out. A few days later, the two countries' border had closed. Um, and then from then on, I was at the same time archiving everything that I felt would be deleted by the government. And then again, like immediately um, after that, started making this film. 
Now, when you say started making this film, that's even more complicated because you're in New Jersey um, and you, you got camera people in China to be, to be filming these. Talk a bit about how that came about, um, about their safety, not just uh, obviously medically, but politically and socially. How, how did you deal with all that? Yeah, so um, the turning moment that I turned from a mom, a daughter who was worried about family safety to a filmmaker was one night um, I was sitting in my living room late night and I saw a social media forum uh, on Weibo, which is a Chinese version of Twitter. And there were 1,500 people posting their um, ID photos, phone numbers, addresses um, with a hashtag crying for help, like somebody help me. And they have photos of them laying in bed and dying. So when I discovered that, my the emotions that came out was like, I was so outraged and also so sad and also afraid that if I if I wake up the next morning, all the, the, the entire platform could be uh, gone. So I stayed up all night and I archived the, the all the 1500 people's information. And then, then I, um, I made a 500 pages PDF and sent to a news organization asking if they could report the story. Um, for some reasons they couldn't. And then that was the moment I felt I needed to make a film. Um, and the next steps is a little complicated because like I said, I was here um, trying to find somebody inside of Wuhan, which had the most strict uh, lockdown in the entire world that people needed to have a certificate to go out to their apartment and let alone filming. So finding those contacts. Um, so me and my producers here um, worked together first to send a couple of messages to people who we trusted, encrypted messages. And we couldn't really um, post job hiring in, in public. So we were like, okay, let's send to the people we trusted. And then we got a few responses and we asked those people to go out to film who had a permission to go out. And then they were either filming um, DSLR camera or like simply iPhone. And then through them, we continue asking who they knew they can ask um, through encrypted messages or a safe um, channel because the fear was um, if the government found out I was making the film because of my previous films that were all political uh, sensitive, they would immediately shut down the production and we wouldn't be able to do anything else. So very quickly, we were able to find someone to film inside the hospital. And those few cinematographers and journalists had already been filming in the hospital um, and had the credential before. And it was a process of convincing them and um, took a lot of conversations to really get for both of us to trust each other. Because on my end, I felt I couldn't really trust a stranger, like if I tell the stranger, I wanted to make a film and I wanted to do this, this, the fear would be the next moment that person would go report to the authority that I was going to make a film. And at the same time, I think the other person wouldn't trust me as a stranger. What my motivation was, was I hired by quote unquote, foreign agencies, um, which in China, there is a rising hostility towards um, 
media or um, whether it's a journalist or filmmaker from outside of China because of the government had promoted that a lot of those were funded by hostile foreign forces. So the conversations often took like getting to know each other, me bet between me and the cinematographers, uh, telling them who I who I am and um, what motivated me to make documentaries in general and why I wanted to make this film. And I often tell them I wanted to document the history as it's unfolding. And this is a very important part of our history. And you, the person who I was talking to, have the access and have the opportunity to witness them. You are like in Wuhan right now and you are seeing, witnessing this part of history as no one does. And I hope that you will be able to help document this. Um, and people who eventually worked on this film are great for different reasons. And that's part of like included in the film too. So after they came on board, the next stage is to make sure, you know, political and physical um, safety. Um, in terms of physical safety, luckily those people, the first few cinematographers we hired, they had been working in the hospital for a while now. And they learned from doctors and nurses how to down and off and they have all the equipment um, PPE ready. So we asked them to film tutorial on how to put on stuff and how to take off, how to clean equipment. And we use those tutorial for every other crew member we hired after that. And in terms of political um, risks, uh, we were taking precautions such as every single uh, two, like from one point to another point, uh, communication is encrypted. And every person has a new account, whether it's so, uh, you know, the messenger or email or a platform that they use. So it's not mixed with their personal, um, that's something that they use in a regular um, basis. And then um, each of us use a pseudonym. And so if it is like that account being hacked or, um, you know, exposed, um, that they still have to trace back to who. And then the other thing is, um, we end up having more than 10 cinematographers and um, a lot like researchers and a few producers working on it. We assign each person one thread of the story. So uh, if one person is going to meet the three uh, subjects of the film, we don't assign this person then to go to meet a journalist because if you start bringing mix of the different sources, you might jeopardize, if you jeopardize one, if the journalist is uh, being surveilled, you might bring danger to the other person you're going to meet in the next day because you're being monitored. So each one of our crew member is assigned with a, a very specific storyline. And if you look at that storyline itself, um, it might not be like sensitive. Nothing is uh, politically wrong in, or subversive to the government. And it is the, the combination of editorialization um, that um, analyzes that's analytical and critical. Um, so the idea is if any of our crew members were to be questioned by the government, um, there is plausible deniability. Um, yeah. I have to take a deep breath just to, you know, you had to really think through the process of getting the footage, you know, from China. 
Um, the film also explores how the United States responds to COVID-19 during the early stages. And so at what point did you decide to include, you know, how, yeah, how the country responded, but also giving uh, the perspective of those who refuse to get vaccinated and those who have deep distrust of the government. So the U.S. part of the storyline was completely unexpected and shocking, and I think to most people too, because um, in January and February, I had not expected um, the outbreak would have reached the U.S., and the U.S. would have responded um, in a way that was shockingly similar to um, to China's response, which was filled with um, misinformation and disinformation and the lack of transparency. Um, so when that happened in March, um, my I was thrown into a state of I think confusion and um, just. It was perplexing. And to me, I think someone as an immigrant and I came to the United States with a very idealistic view of um, what the country represents. Um, that was a moment that I had to ask myself, what did I not know about the U.S. and what I had not seen, what I had been um, blindsided by my own biases um, about the country. So as a filmmaker, oftentimes I felt the film, the filmmaking process is my way of trying to make sense of the chaos, trying to make sense of the situation. And when I was confronted by all of those questions, that became part of the narrative too. And the filmmaking immediately, I think, evolved naturally uh, and expanded to the U.S. We then had, um, I was working with, um, uh, our, our producers, Jalin, and the model pictures, Julie and Chris and Kellen, we are all here, like in uh, uh, based in, on the East Coast. So what we did is then we reached out to cinematographers across the U.S. that who can go to different states to film, and and those was part of me. I think was me really trying to through the filming and the editing to try to answer those questions, like what is going on here and why I'm seeing China and the U.S. Uh, completely different political systems and two countries claim the opposite as well and um, have so much in similar um, in the way that how the government had, um, you know, uh, withheld information intentionally mislead um, the public and prioritized preserving its image over public health and safety. So a lot of those things became the themes of this film. Uh, well, and right along those lines, of course, I mean, you, you begin the film with the New Year's celebration in Wuhan. And after that, my, my first thing was just amazement at the 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 buildings being lit up and all the synchronized uh, uh, pageantry of these buildings. I mean, here we're, we're kind of amazed if one skyscraper kind of puts a go 49ers thing during the Super Bowl or something. But I mean, this was like, it looked like the entire downtown was all, I mean, it was, it was gorgeous. And yet as we're going through the movie, and of course we see some of those other scenes again in the end, 
But as we go through the movie, it's really kind of sinking in. This is a government that 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 has total control over all that. It you know it'll go in and it'll delete your posts uh, that you 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 know like the, one of the people you you were interviewing there, um, where you know one of the citizen uh, journalists. Um, it'll you know it can control all the pageantry. It can tr- control the the news. I mean the, the the clips you have there of the the news readers all saying exactly the same words on on multiple. I mean that's that really kind of hits home. Not and of course it may be a different variety there that in China that that they're doing that. But of course here in the United States we also saw you know the misinformation, the denials, the conspiracy theories all running through very high tech you know social media. Um, various platforms and everything. Um, it it does seem to me that it, it's easier now for the government governments to exercise those those uh, types of campaigns to kind of control the hearts and minds of people than than it would have been twenty thirty years ago. Your thoughts? Absolutely, Your thoughts? and I think it's also uh, harder to detect because um, twenty or thirty years ago, uh, or like let's like pre-social media uh, world where you can, it's still, it takes a sophisticated mind and trained eyes to see, uh, to differentiate propaganda, you know, versus like from the sea of uh, information, whether it's from the news or from TV. And in China, definitely that that's more is um, 24 seven cycle of um, media was completely controlled by the state. Um, and now, although like now that we have social media and um, it's so hard to trace and and it is so hard to, it, it can be, uh, there could be government f- forces behind a campaign, behind a message, but it's hard to pinpoint where it exactly come from or where, what is sponsored by whom and what is message is intentionally promoted by whom. Um, and um and that's one of the things that I think uh, in the same breath was really trying to highlight, which is the virus is not as nearly as dangerous as the misinformation and disinformation we are facing. And I always felt that um, even in 2020, we knew that there would be a vaccine. And we knew that although we didn't know it's going to take so long, that eventually the pandemic would would end. Um, it's, it's surprising that we are still in the midst of it. But what is more dangerous and more horrifying, I felt, um, is there is no vaccine to misinformation, disinformation, and there is no really uh, contact to tracing or um, an effective way of detecting it and then fighting against it. And it probably won't, we won't have that in a long time. And the speed of spreading and the consequences of it and uh, the level of out of control and the damage it would have on a society is, is to me, is more um, scary than coronavirus itself. And if I want to follow up on that, just this, I, I watched this film on HBO Max and I think that's how it's being distributed. Um, we, we hear other stories throughout Hollywood of you know movies that are being made where they're catering the the script they're catering the 
the casting and the marketing in order to please China because they want it to be able to, they want to be obviously have it play in the Chinese market. So they're soft peddling things. If, if any of the actors tweet something negative about China, they're, they're getting into all sorts of trouble. Um, you, you talked about there's no vaccine for, for misinformation and, and all this stuff, but you know, it's the independent documentarians and the independent citizen journalists and such seem to be very crucial. Do, are there enough outlets and, and support for the work that people like you are doing in order to try to trying to think of a vaccine analogy to make, but to, to kind of try to play some of that role? Too. I think I am one of the lucky ones that um, the film um, from a very early on HBO um, trusted in this project and supported 100% with um, complete creative freedom and allowed a platform for the film to be seen widely. But I think I am one of the like lucky ones and there certainly could use a lot more um, support for independent filmmakers. But I also think to rely on um, raising critical consciousness or um, educating people uh, on films or uh, literature or articles, um, that's not nearly enough because how much audience that a film could reach and how vast um, the population is. I think if there is no adequate and even like reformed media literacy education uh, in the near future, what we are going to see is going to be another pandemic if it's not taking the same form, but uh, we talk about infodemic and, you know, there are some, so much that could suffer from um, people's, just the, the ideological in a way that believe in, and we are already seeing that the different um, level of everybody, no matter what they believe, firmly believe what they were holding is the truth and refuse to see the other side and that that's true with any anybody and I think uh, in order for people to have the ability and including myself because I oftentimes um, learned that I had my own biases and only after and each film for me is a discovery of what I didn't know before and what my biases were but in order for people to have the ability to reflect to to be to have the critical consciousness and to be able to do research, to be able to differentiate um, what is what, what information is true and non-true. I think it requires education, middle literacy from maybe elementary through college, and and that's not like by seeing one film or reading one article that can change. Yeah, to follow up on that, I mean, I'm wondering if you feel as if the people who need to be listening are listening or two years into this thing. And, you know, we all know that uh, we could be living with this. There could be more to come. The most important thing to take away from not just the film, but their experiences of these last two years is that the misinformation definitely led to a lot of, in my opinion, at least, um, you know, lives that we could have saved. It, le it led to a lot of deaths. It led to a global pa pandemic. I'm, I'm not sure, but, you know, if, if uh, China had been honest about the the virus to, to begin with or that it was open and known to the rest of the world when it should have, 
could we have prevented a, a global pandemic? So the question I have for you is really, you know, are these leaders understanding that the, the misinformation is even more deadly than the virus itself? Your thoughts? It's, yeah, I wish we could all ask them this question. I think um, if you were going to ask, so in the film, uh, we see leaders telling us nothing to worry about um, in both countries. And it's also not uncommon. It's also not just isolated in China or US. And if you go beyond the two countries and everywhere in between, the leaders uh, more or less did similar things in many countries. Um, if you ask them whether they would admit that they were spreading um, information that is untrue intentionally, or um, I'm sure we would get lots of different answers, but I think and probably more denial because what we have seen is they would tell us everything is fine until there is absolutely no way to continue that narrative anymore. Then they would have be forced to admit that it, it is not uh, under control. Um, I think inherently power um, and people who are in power, their instinct is to preserve that power. Um, and that's what we have seen. At least I felt like what we have seen um, during the pandemic is that's the priority. And uh, I think that would only... I don't know, change uh, is too optimistic to say, but like only would we would be able to um, prevent that is, is if enough citizens are able to, there is a um, mechanism to hold them accountable. And, but I don't think we were able to, and we're not seeing like, especially in China and in the US during the early stages, when people who are questioning, when people who, who are um, raising, you know, uh, questions, alarms, and sending alarm, they were um, they were being silenced. By, by the way, sorry, I wanted to just add this. Um, I, I do still feel resentment for um, accepting the narrative that we didn't need to wear masks in the beginning, and here we are two years later, and and cloth, <laughs> and cloth masks don't, aren't even going to cut it. I know I was uh, when I saw like just a few days ago about the cloth ma uh, mask and it, in the breaking news, I just laughed because it, it um, yeah. Yeah. And, and now it's KN95 masks. And in fact, we, we're getting a bunch of them at the club so that that'll be the new standard you have to wear in the building. Um, uh, it, it, it's interesting talking about kind of the, the, the narratives that these, these, both countries were putting out, both governments were putting out, and their reasons, I mean, or their fears, you know, that we, we see this a number of folks in China who are talking about, you know, we, we have to support the government. We don't want the, the West to see us. They see us. If they see that there's this problem, they'll attack. It's, it's a, they'll, they'll insult us. They'll, they'll, you know, it'll hurt our image. And over in the United States, of course, Donald Trump was projecting this image of, you know, I always do everything right. I'm never wrong and such. And to me, the horrible irony of this is that what China's government did brought it disrepute. If they had done kind of what you, you, you briefly allude to toward the end of the film of come out and said, look, we've got this problem here. We're cooperating internationally. 
there would have been a heck of a lot of more, I think, respect for the Chinese government and um, for the leadership even of the, of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, for understanding, okay, cool, they're, they're, they're being open about this. I think Donald Trump would have been reelected if he had, he didn't even need to lead well, if he had just gotten out of the way and, you know, and not injected himself in, in doing really spreading misinformation and, and lies and such. So it, it's just interesting to me, I think, at least my interpretation of it is that both of them really undercut themselves in an attempt to protect themselves. And of course, we all paid the price for this. Um, I realize there wasn't really a question there, so I'm just going to move right into another thing, which is, that, I mean, there are so many heartbreaking scenes in, in this documentary. I mean, the man having to decide whether to take his, you know, mother, it was his mother, I think, either back home or leave her there to die at the hospital, which couldn't take her in or wouldn't take her in, or the father trying to see his sick son, or the people grieving for loved ones who, you know, were dying alone and, and, and uh, um, you know, or even unconscious. Um, I'm kind of curious in your thoughts about how this type of a trauma, you know, that so many people in societies are feeling, um, how that could affect them going forward. You kind of touch on a bit about the political ramifications of this and how people have gone through these things and and how they then feel about the government afterwards. Could you, t I, don't, I don't know if you're catching where I'm going with this. Could you talk a bit about that, how, you know, past real failures of the government to deal with like a pandemic or a big health crisis or something, it didn't undercut them. I mean, there, there was kind of a resurgence of, you know, pride and joy and yeah it's uh so like uh, two two things one is about the trauma um when i was making in the same breath like i talked to so many um families of um covet victims and um it was devastating to talking to each individual because the stories on paper, or if you summarize their story, it, they all sim seemed somehow similar, like my mom or my dad or my son or somebody in a few days suddenly developed symptoms and suddenly, you know, the situation got uh, deteriorating very quickly and then uh, somebody's life, you know, was gone. And it looked similar storyline. But when I talk to each individual, like they cry and I would cry with them because the way that they described in, you know, who that person is and what they are and how they experienced and what that meant to them, how the world completely changed to them. Each person's loss is so unique and so individual. And there's nothing that is two stories that are similar in that sense, because to that one individual, that's the whole world. And um, there's no replication, there is no, so that's something that I really um, felt frustrated because I, I realized I could talk to five people and 10 people and I would feel like five times, different times, 10 different times and my heart was just being ripped open and, and I understood their trauma, which a lot of them a year later and two years later, and especially right now, January, uh, a lot of people by the time we get to February 2020 died um, and they they still haven't 
gone past and probably won't in a long time. Some people lost entire families. Lost there was one person um in the family Chong. She lost her her dad, her mom, and she had she's by herself now as a as a single child. Um, so the trauma part I don't know, and I think the trauma is something that talking in the broader sense that how the pandemic has affected each one of us. Um, that's that that's something we won't even begin to fathom in years to come. We're still talking about how it affects kids, how it affects like teenagers, how it affects everyone. Um, and then on the other hand, like the the other question that you were mentioning, how why um, so many victims in China that after the the outbreak in Wuhan, uh, after the quarantine was lifted, that they turn around and they praise the government, and that is very 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 interesting. And but it wasn't too surprising to me um, because. When I was making One Child Nation, which was about the consequences and the impact of one child policy in China, that was the first time I was shocked because I would meet parents who gave up their kid, who lost their kid due to the policy, who would cry, who you can see how as parents, they never recovered from that loss. And yet they would still say the policy was great. Our government did the best that they could. And that's exactly the same narrative um, now that um, the outbreak in Wuhan has passed the first initial stage, people, people's conclusion. And I think it has um, many reasons. One is we're talking to about a lot of people who throughout their entire life, like my mom, she never was encouraged, whether it's from education or from media education or regular education that she received, never, never was encouraged to, to be critical, never was encouraged to think differently. And that's one thing. And then another thing is from January till today, every day in China, the media was controlled by the state. The media has created a narrative which promotes a successful victory story. And when you are watching something, whenever that's just a, what you have access to on TV, on news, on everywhere in your life, social media, that's the narrative that you hear that one, China did the best they could. There is nothing else they could do as a natural disaster. Two, every other country has done a worse job and look at the US. And so that's the narrative they have been promoting and that has almost replaced people's actual memory now. And that's what have been internalized um, by people. And I can already see that that would be the version in the history book in China. And I think that was why a lot of people in China, despite that they lost their family members, they consider it a natural dis disaster they couldn't avoid, like an earthquake or you know anything. And then, but the government didn't have the responsibility. Well, if I am going to write a future book, it would be about failed leadership during a pandemic period everywhere around the world. Um, that's what I would write about. I mean, you know, there was a scene in there in which. Uh, 
a healthcare worker or frontline worker talked about the fact that the United States had relied on statistics um, uh, uh, surrounding supplies versus science. And then you write and you just mentioned it, that there were just other priorities going on. So um, I'm curious to hear, you know, what has been the responses? You brought up your your mom uh, and then you brought up, yet yeah, right, some of the folks that you'd featured in the film. Uh, there, in the film, we learn of journalists who have gone missing. We learned that there were doctors early on who were trying to ring the, the alarm bell who had become silenced. I, I'm curious to hear the responses after seeing the film. Like what kind of responses were you getting from either China or uh, here in the States? Yeah, in the U.S., I think um, it's interesting because uh, since the film premiered um, in 2021, January, a year ago, um, on Sundays at a festival, and then in August at HBO, um, it has been pretty much virtual. So I would get occasionally like people sending me, there was not a lot of like face-to-face conversation, but I would get people's responses. I think in the U.S., you often, um, I... I would find that people, and that is true, oftentimes they got a partial image of China through news reporting through or um, based on where whatever their circle is and what their preconceived notion of what China is. And seeing it, this, uh, I think, gave, me, gave them a, a new, a new uh, way of looking at it. Um, and the U.S. part of it, um, I think what people have said is it allows them to look to, to have more clarity in the situation um, because it is uh, combing through the very chaotic um, situation reality. And um, we basically built a database when we were making this film to try to really go through the entire timeline from November um, all the way. Um and then the response in China, people couldn't see the film officially in China. So oftentimes they uh, would find a way to watch it um, through VPN and um, change location to the U.S. Uh, when when it was available here. Um, and then I have gotten feedback from journalists, activists, and sometimes just the regular people. Um, the most touching ones are as I mentioned, that China has pretty much successfully written its version of history um, uh, on the pandemic, even though we're still in it, but it's formed. And it is the way that it's being presented to everyone in China in the in the school room that they would learn about the pandemic, how they would learn. So when people saw the film, they appreciated that um, it reminded them this collective memory that would have otherwise been forgotten and just faded from people's consciousness because um, the more that they are exposed to, there is one narrative that, and being told again and again and reshaped, that almost sometimes become their truth. So when there is a documentation that has visuals, has um, the actual documents from the time, people suddenly was reminded, oh, this was how I felt. This was what I saw then. And I almost completely forgot. And it was funny because a lot of people in the U.S. had actually 
said to me that when they saw the clip that Fauci said in March that don't wear a mask, their consciousness has almost, I think, shut that off. And then they don't remember um, that has been said before. Or they hadn't, it was so chaotic in March that who has said what and when it was completely became in the blur. So when they saw the film, again, they were reminded, oh, this was part of the history. Yeah. So you were not just documenting something that was happening to other people. As, as we noted, you were talking about your own family. Um, and I, did working on a documentary about this while it's happening, did that help you deal with the, I assume, the stresses and the worry that you were feeling? Or did it exacerbate that? It, it helps. It's therapeutical. I felt when I was working on it in 2020, when I'm sure everybody was consumed, um, overwhelmed by um, the situation and uh, news is every day you hear about it. To me, I oftentimes, I remember when I was working on it and I felt how grateful that I happened to be a filmmaker and then I had the skills to, to be able to respond to it actively. Like I wasn't in the passive way to receive the information to, to, to live in through that period, period, but I was able to go out to explore, to, to interrogate the situation and to be constantly engaging in an active way and, and to be able to express my own emotions um, and work through those emotions, through images, through the film. And I think a lot of people must have felt um, a lot of the similar emotions that I felt it was so extreme that if I hadn't been working on the film, I wouldn't have found an outlet. I wouldn't have known what what I could do, how I could uh, just not feel so strongly about. But once it's almost like this is a this is a platform that once I let the emotions go through the footage, then I felt like it was it was expressed if that makes sense, yeah. As a viewer, I have to say, you know, I felt validated. Um, a lot of the beginning, uh, I guess, anxiety around the COVID and what my thoughts were inside, like, no, I think we should wear a mask, or I think this is way more serious than just a cold or a flu. It, it all got validated for me as a viewer. So thank you so much for the film. At the end of the film, though, I, you know, um, I was surprised by, by uh, what you said, that there was something much more frightening than the virus itself. Uh, so I know we're winding down on time. I'd love for you to talk about what you mean by that. Yeah, um, it was um, connected to what I mentioned earlier about um, the spread of misinformation and disinformation in this digital, in this social media age, in this quote-unquote post-truth age, um, and how... Um, we can discern that and how, what kind of a mechanism, what kind of effective um, response that we can have. And also by this tendency of authoritarianism um, that we have seen in the past years um, rising all around the world. And, and like I said, I grew up in China and I'm so aware of like chi the Chinese government and how it governs and seeing how it had right, rising from the pandemic and 
it is true. I think a lot of scholars and experts and people would have praised um, the efficient, quote unquote, efficiency of uh, its handling of Wuhan um, pandemic, and the the outbreak. I meant, and how um, if that's the case, and if ha- that's how people are started saying, and unfortunately, how bad the U.S. handled it had become a propaganda tool uh, to serve to further serve China's narrative that our system is better. Um, although this is not really a contrast, like not a competition at all, um, but there is a, a, a lot of discussion and conversation uh, discourse that people are saying what China did, it, it is good. And my fear is that by acknowledging that and by almost approving that um, our world um, is, and then not seeing the problems that it has, our world is going further towards that direction of having authoritarian govern and leaders um, rising in the, in, the, in the next decade. One of our viewers asks, uh, if you have a sense of how China's policy toward COVID is affecting people's lives now, so after the time when you made your... So China has the most strict lockdown policy um, and testing policy. So... Um, from and everybody has very strict uh, QR code, um, whether they are like green color, orange color, or red color. Really, like it's so well well um, in, implemented that it really affects whether they can get on a subway or whether they can get on a train. And um, for outsiders, people who travel to China, is a mandated. Um, three weeks of quarantine in the hotel, military style. Like a husband and wife needs to be separated in two rooms. And um, in China right now, there are outbreaks in different cities. So uh, currently in Xi'an, which I believe has um, 13 million people, if I remember correctly, that it, it's the same scale of um, Wuhan's lockdown, that the entire city is under that lockdown. And there are new uh, cases arising in Tianjin and Beijing, and they do quarantine uh, each city when they discover an outbreak, a breakthrough out, uh, in that city. And it's, it's the same as uh, what you've seen in the film in Wuhan. This is uh, one of my, my final questions for you. Um, one aspect of, of COVID-19 and the pandemic specific to the Asian community is the anti-Asian racism and hate and violence that we've seen spun out of this. And, um, you know, it wasn't talked much uh, through the film because I know that it was focused on, you know, different aspect of it, but I wanted to hear if you had thought about it, you know, after the film had already finished, that that might be a component you would talk about or include in a future film. Absolutely. I think so. In the film, um, there is a scene where um, the reopen protesters are, you know, uh, everywhere uh, in the country. And there is a scene in, um, I believe it's in Chicago. Um, we, our cinematographer for, who was filming that day um, was an Asian guy, um, Sam, his name is. And um, he was like verbally attacked by the protesters and calling him, you know, because he 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 is Chinese-American. And so even at the time, 
we could already see where it came from, and we could see by calling it, you know, China virus,、um, by by speculating that this was manufactured in a lab in China. Like all of those contributed to the rise of Asian hate, and it's not coming out of nowhere. And this is what I was saying that、um, it's the kind of a virus that. You don't really pay attention to, and then it, when it spreads, it's way out of control. It's、um, it has spread to the entire country, and so many people. When when at the very beginning, it could start from one person. It could be one person's narrative, and and that kind of spread it to a lot. So that's something that I hope also that the film could show people, which is the two countries' leaders have. Taken advantage of this and made a competition by pointing the fingers at the other country.、Um, in China, they blamed blamed that the virus originated in the U.S. by the U.S. military, and each each country's government、um, and certain leaders they were、um, Encouraging this hostility towards the other country's people or another ethnicity, and I hope that the film sh- what it shows is、um, we are all similar, and the film shows how in pe- people both in China and the U.S. they suffered the mistakes that made by the government, but if you look at the people themselves, they really have a lot more similarities than the differences. I know we're wrapping up, so I, I just want to get into writer Matt.、Uh, I believe it's Fagerholm calls you quote one of the best and most important filmmakers working today unquote. So, is there anything you can tell us about what your next project is? Are you already working on another project? I am working on two projects,、um, but I couldn't talk more about it <laughs> what they are. But yeah. Well, we'll go ahead and、uh, send you off. And thank you so much for being here with us. I know that you've you you got to run off to more important things than chatting with John and I.、Uh, so we appreciate your time. Is HBO Max the only way that people can watch the film in the same breath? I think so. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, yeah. Catch it if you can,、uh, and you know. Borrow a friend subscription if you don't have one、uh, and you need to. It's a very, very important film in the same breath. Nan Fu Wang, thank you so much for joining us for this important conversation. Thank you, John. Back to you. Well, thank you again to our special guest today on the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. And last but not least, thanks to all of you watching and listening online. You can find more programs at commonwealthclub.org/mms. Stay safe and have a good week.